It's great to see this kind of、uh, interest in the Talmud of all things, interesting and otherwise. What I want to do before we get into our text tonight, let's start with what is the Talmud?、Uh, what is this work that we will be、uh, looking at off and on through、uh, the coming semester and the coming time? What is this text? Does anybody want to say a word? About Talmud. Well, you know, even before we go there,、um, I would love to start with our traditional bracha, the blessing that we say for Torah study of all kinds, and there are all kinds of Torah in this world. We'll hear a little bit about what kind of Torah this is tonight. But、uh, let's start with that bracha. It's Sok B'divrei Torah for those of you who are regulars at some of the other Torah studies. So Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kishanu B'mitzvotav Vitzivanu LaAsok B'divrei Torah. Amen. So, to return to my previous question, what then is the Talmud? Any thoughts? Commentaries. Talmud is commentaries. That's right. I said Torah. We、uh, recite that blessing over Torah, even when we're reading texts that aren't specifically from the Torah, because this,、uh, there's an idea in Judaism that there's Torah with both a capital T, which is the five books of Moses, and a to- and Torah with a lowercase T. That there is all kinds of learning, all kinds of wisdom, all kinds of teaching to be gleaned from all kinds of texts. So I would say that this. Uh, it's not Torah is in the sense of the five books of Moses, but it is certainly Torah with a lowercase T. So you said commentaries. Great.、Um, does anybody want to say another word about what is the Talmud? You have yeah. It is a conversation as well. There's a lot in Talmud that is a back and forth conversation. Yeah. That's right.、Uh, it does. It is related to that Hebrew word for learning.、Um, that's absolutely right.、Um, all of these are correct answers. Other pieces about what the Talmud is. You want to contribute? Yeah, two more here. Preservation of arguments between the rabbis with the the prevailing、um, opinion presented, but also the diverting opinions that led up to that. That's right. Absolutely right. Yeah. It is a set of commentaries on the Torah. So, I'll start at the beginning. The Talmud is actually we've got some more seats、uh, over here in front for anyone who's coming in.、Um, the Talmud is comprised of two written works:、uh, the Mishnah and the Gemara. Those together make up the Talmud. The these are essentially the first、um, written works that are sort of. Non-biblical in nature. Now there were some biblical books like the like the Book of Ab and Sirach or Maccabees, for instance, that are、uh, sort of biblical in nature, but they weren't necessarily in the canon. So like Maccabees is not actually in the Hebrew Bible.、Uh, interestingly enough, it is in the Catholic Bible, but that's a story for another time.、Um, So the Talmud represents a completely new genre of this work. So these biblical and、uh, sort of books, they all sort of talk from the perspective and from the voice of being within the Bible. The Talmud is the first Jew- Jewish written work that exists beyond that, where it's trying to unpack. Okay, well, what is the Bible saying? What does it mean? How do we、uh, how do we take The Torah, take the Bible, take all of this material, and actually make it something that works in your life. With all of the different pieces that are contradictory, that are complex, that are—it's、um, hard to figure out what does this stuff mean. Yeah. When was it written? 
great. We're getting there. So <laughs> that's exactly where we're going. You are absolutely right to ask. So it's not clear exactly when the Talmud, was, when the Mishnah, which is the first part of it, was beginning to be written, but it goes back to uh, around the turn of the uh, millennia, so around the year zero and so, and it was redacted by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. He was the head of the rabbinic Beit Midrash, the head of the rabbinic assembly, and also a political leader. He redacted the Mishnah in the year 220. So that was the beginning of all of that piece. The Mishnah is in uh, Mishnaic Hebrew. It's uh, like biblical Hebrew, but the syntax is totally different. So I'll tell you just anecdotally, when I was first starting in rabbinical school, I could understand every word in the sentence in a line of Bible, and I didn't understand what the sentence was saying, because the syntax was so different. Whereas Mishnaic Hebrew, because I spoke modern Hebrew, I could understand really easily. Now the Talmud, so not the Talmud, sorry. So the second piece of the Talmud is the Gemara. The Gemara is a set of... Uh, Discourse that expands upon commentaries again, that expands upon the Mishnah. Those two works together make up the Talmud. Uh, the Gemara now is written off and on in Mishnaic Hebrew and sometimes in Aramaic. So we're getting into very different linguistic stuff and very different um, pieces with it. The Gemara, it's not entirely clear when it was redacted, and it was likely redacted in different places at different times, but we probably have the Talmud in the form that we have it by the year 700 or so. Um, so that's a piece of uh, the Talmud and the redaction of the Talmud. Yeah. What's redacted exactly? That means that they sort of finished it off, that they signed, sealed, delivered, that they said, all right, this is the written work and we're not putting more into it. Um, it's a little bit complex because then there are medieval rabbis who continue commenting on it. So, for instance, if you look at a page of Talmud, you will see the commentary of Rashi on the insides. Um, I should have brought some Talmuds, but um, next time. Next time we'll bring some, so we'll have a look inside. It's fairly uh, dense and impenetrable unless you've got a really solid, solid background in both the Hebrew and the Aramaic, which is a piece of why I have these texts today in English. Um <laughs> But the other thing about the Talmud, there are actually two Talmuds. I don't know if anyone has ever heard this before. Yeah. yeah. All I know is that one is the Babylonian Talmud, but I don't know what the other is. The that's right. The Jerusalem Talmud is the other one. Um, commonly referred to in English by scholars as the Palestinian Talmud. Um, so there's the Babylonian Talmud and the Palestinian Talmud, the Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi uh, in Hebrew. So the interesting thing was there's this whole group of uh, Jews in the Bible, that when the Babylonians came in, they destroyed the first temple, they exiled all the Jews um, into Babylonia. What happened was then that a bigger fish came along and swallowed them. This was the Persian Empire, and allowed the Jews to go back uh, to build the second temple. So this is all in the year 500 or so BCE. But a lot of Jews remained in Babylonia. They remained in the diaspora. So this is one of the early, early diaspora Jewish communities. Now, what was interesting about the Talmud is they had rabbinic centers in both places, both uh, in and around the land of Israel, the whole area, and in and around Babylonia, having uh, essentially the same kinds of conversations and telling the same stories and having the same arguments. So what we get are two similar and parallel Talmuds, the Yerushalmi and the Bavli, but they are a little bit different. I can tell you that most often when people are studying Talmud, they're learning the Bavli the Babylonian. Um, the Yerushalmi Talmud is, 
it's interesting because it's had less tweaking by sort of unseen hands throughout history. So the Yerushalmi is actually a probably a closer facsimile to what the document originally was, but that also makes it a lot harder to read. So sometimes medieval rabbis would go back and tweak this line or this passage or this piece to make it make a little bit more sense in their time, um, whereas that process didn't take place with the Yerushalmi. So the Bavli, as a result, is more accessible, but also a little bit, it's not exactly as faithful to exactly what they were saying. Now, what's in the Talmud? So we said commentaries. That's a good place to start. Um, the Talmud is actually the longest written work in the ancient world by about four times. The only thing, the thing, the next closest document is some book of uh, Greek legal codes or some such, or Roman or something like that. Um, and again, it's a quarter of the size of the Talmud. The Talmud is actually 63 different volumes called uh, tractates. Each one is uh, in Hebrew called a masechet, if anyone has ever heard that before. Those get subdivided into six orders, as they say. But the Talmud, the reason it's so long is it preserves everybody's voice. Um, as uh, I think someone was talking about over here, it doesn't just give you the prevailing opinion. It retains all of the dissenting opinions as well, and everybody who agreed and everybody who disagreed. So they'll say, the ha- the Chachamim, our sages, uh, make the determination that this is the ruling here. Well, Rabbi Yossi says, this is the ruling. And Rabbi Yishmael says, this is the ruling. It'll keep all of those different pieces throughout there. Now... What the Talmud is comprised of over this, you know, massive volume are basically two genres of written work. We have halakha, which is the legal stuff. It's the prescriptive stuff. It's what you're supposed to do. It's all the rules and all of that. Um, what's interesting is that those halachot aren't actually what most uh, very traditional halachic, uh, say, Orthodox Jews are even necessarily doing because that then gets modified in uh, medieval eras and medieval law codes. So uh, if you look at a Talmud, if you're looking at what the law is, you'll oftentimes find footnotes saying, okay, that was what they said it was back then. It's since gotten modified. So that's just a word on all of the legal stuff. The other half of it is called agada or Agadata, depending on whether it's Aramaic or Hebrew or whatever. And it's the same uh, Hebrew word as the Haggadah from the Passover Seder. It means uh, it's our legends. It's our stories. It's the rabbis explaining their times and their world in all kinds of uh, amazing and fantastical and uh, mystical stories that you see that they then are sort of center stage in all of these dramas. So... What's interesting is the way in which it sort of flows all together. Now, one other word, or one way in which the Talmud is referred to commonly, is as the oral Torah. They say the written Torah is the you know, Hebrew Bible stuff that was written down, and the oral Torah is the commentaries on it. Well, they say that, even though it's all written down at this point, because originally it did start as a conversation. And it's amazing to see, when you read it, you actually hear the conversation, and you hear the back and forth. Um, not just between rabbis in terms of genre, um, but even through centuries. So there will be rabbis in there that we know did not exist at the same time. One of them was from the year 300, another one was from the year 500-something, and yet the Talmud has as them having an argument about something and responding to one another. There's an amazing idea in Talmud that it exists. All of this learning, all of this debating, this conversation, all of this exists outside of any kind of notion of Western temporality, any kind of linear time, which is a fascinating thing to look at. Yeah? I have to ask you one question. Go ahead. Is the Talmud still written now? Their conversation is there. Their argument mm-hmm. are still written down now? Yes, yes. Um, so it's not a closed book. 
Yes and no. So what's interesting is the way in which, say, the Talmud, we have this determination that this is what was in the Talmud originally, but then we have all these commentaries around the outside. So Rashi, for instance, who was a French rabbi around the turn of the millennia, so about 1,000, I think 1,100-something. Um, and he was this sort of um, crazy genius where he read the entire thing and had memorized the entire thing and had commentary himself on the entire thing. So he then, so any Talmud you see now actually has his commentary sort of written in the margins around it. Um, it's fascinating to look at in that way. Um, it would be tough for everybody to gather around and look at one piece of Talmud, but uh, like I said, I'd love to bring one next time. Um, or perhaps here, actually, in a little bit, I'll go get one, and I'll, I'll bring a few and pass them around. Yeah, go ahead. So every page of the 63 volumes has Rashi in it? Yeah. Some of them have more. Some of them have less. Other things that are very interesting are when, um, and this is actually, I thought, fascinating, is that, uh, because, like I said, he was a French scholar. He was a French rabbi in, uh, like, the year 1100. So there are actually scholars of early French that are interested in what it is that he says because it gives them an insight into the French language early on. Um, there are other places in which he will be talking about some concept. You'll look at it in Aramaic and say, what does that mean? And then you'll look at Rashi and he'll say, oh, this is simple. It means, and he'll write it out phonetically, but it'll mean some antiquated French thing that I, I don't know any French. So <laughs> it is somewhat less helpful than uh, even just seeing that. So, But it's incredible to see that his is... Through his commentary is throughout the entire thing, and then in addition, there will be addition. There will be other commentaries by medieval rabbis um, or other written materials uh, like midrash or other baraita. A baraita is the name of a text that is in the same time period or same era. Or say, it's another story, but it doesn't didn't make it into the Talmud for whatever reason. So they'll say, "Oh, well, we learned in this baraita. We learned in this other story." So it's sort of in and sort of out. It's interesting those borders there. Um, Translated into modern English, like how does it? So there are a few translations into modern English, actually. Interpreted, then it's reinterpreted into English. So, like. what you have today is my translation. I translated <laughs> this one personally um, because I'll look at other translations and I'll use pieces of it, but then there'll be pieces of it where I'll decide I don't actually want to use that because they're giving it some kind of their own editorial right. veneer. Um, so there's one edition that is a pretty like orthodox standard version. Um, it's tricky, though, because they're trying to talk about the Talmud in a way that props up their own identity and their own understandings of what the text says. So in, there are places in which they'll tweak the meaning a little bit. Um, so this idea of translation is very tricky. Um, one of the best translations, this is not necessarily so helpful to everyone, there's a rabbi named Adin Steinsaltz in, in Israel, and he translated the entire Talmud into modern Hebrew so that Israelis, contemporary Israelis, could learn it and read it and be fluent in it and whatnot. And I actually find that to be a fantastic translation. And a whole different interpretation. Right. Um, but again, you have to be good in modern Hebrew. So it's... <laughs> when you study it in rabbinical school, you study it in its original languages? Yes. you study it in English? No, I studied it in Aramaic and uh, Hebrew and what have you. Um so I spent uh, yeah a couple of years doing that uh, when you're in Jerusalem doing that and it's um, the way in which you learn this and I, I, a lot of our rabbinic program does this is that you learn this day in and day out so Talmud you learn three or four days a week and you learn for hours like every morning um, so at the program I was in I just learned it every morning so four or five days a week all Talmud um, 
that's how you get like a handle on it when it's in really foreign language and the, uh, the idioms, all of their landscape is really different. Um, so that's a piece about the Talmud. But to go back to the sort of orality of it, it's interesting to see the way in which the law and the story elements of it are sort of woven together. So arguably the most uh, surreal and bizarre stories are the travels of Rabba Bar Bar Kama, who talks about going on these mystical travelers where he goes with Arab mercenaries on ships and fights dragons and there are all kinds of monsters and birds and all kinds of amazing, fantastical sea voyages. Well, that story starts in a treatise that's discussing boats, about selling your boat and about how big a boat is supposed to be and how it's supposed to be built and whatever. And then this one rabbi goes, oh yeah, and so here's a story about a guy who traveled on a boat one time. And into the story. Um, so you really do get that oral quality of it. You hear it as a conversation. You hear it as an argument. Um, the last thing I want to say about the Talmud is it very much is the beginning of Judaism, I would sort of argue. I would argue that Israelite religion, as we have in the Hebrew Bible, is a pretty different thing. It's all about uh, temple worship and sacrifices and all of this. And so the rabbis, uh, after the destruction of the temple... They go then look at what Judaism is going to, at what they are going to do, who they're going to be, what we're going to have absent a temple. And so they say, oh, well, our relationship with God will be predicated on prayer instead of sacrifice in that way. Um, this all gets negotiated and spelled out and figured out how it is, what Judaism is going to look like after those destructions. All of that gets spelled out in the Talmud. Even just the fact that we have rabbis instead of, say, the priests, the kohanim, um, as our authorities, that even is a Talmudic innovation of the rabbis themselves. So the Talmud across these... 63 volumes, these thousands of pages, is the process by which you see Judaism as we have it today begin to take shape. Um, so it's a really exciting document from that standpoint, too, even if a bit dense. What was that? So, say, I was saying the Mishnah is the commentary. The Mishnah is the first layer of commentary. The Gemara is the second layer of commentary. The two of them all together form the Talmud. Yeah. Who is it that was writing all this down? Was it the speakers themselves or the scribes in the temples? Excellent uh, question. So with uh, the Mishnah it was clear that it was part of this whole project of the rabbis getting together and having this rabbinic court. Um, so when I say that uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi redacted it in the year 220, it was probably the people working for him in his rabbinic court. Now, the question of the entire Talmud, so the Gemara, the second half of it, that's a much bigger question. And to be honest, we don't know for sure when exactly it was redacted and who exactly redacted it. But there is a voice called the Stam in the in the tradition, this sort of narrative voice that seems to be tying it all together with, and this is the ultimate ruling, and this is how we ultimately come down on this piece or that piece, or and here's the next piece of it. It seems to be the sort of narrator of it. Who that narrator is is a sort of a mystery. Um, it's one of the big mysteries uh, looking back in Jewish tradition and Jewish history. Uh, in a word, no. It's not even clear where or when precisely the Stam took place. There are theories that it took place closer to five or 600. There are theories that it took place later, closer to seven or 800. It's not entirely clear. And then it looks like the Yerushalmi Talmud was redacted earlier than the Bavli. Um, so that's a question too. Uh, there are all kinds of interesting things. And the Bavli was actually written across three different cities um, called Sura, Pumbadita, and the third one is escaping me right now. But they were actually um, 
located in modern-day Iraq. Um, so Pumbadita, for instance, was situated uh, at the modern-day city of Fallujah, if anyone was following any of the Iraq War recently, um, which I thought was fascinating to hear that the center, one of the historical centers of Jewish learning, um, is now sort of a wasteland in that way. But the other thing that's interesting is you see the rabbis go back and forth from one community to another. So you'll have some of the same rabbis pop up in the, in the different Talmuds as having traveled from, um, from the different uh, academies and centers in the historic land of Israel to Babylonia and back and forth and so on and so forth. So it's a very interesting, very fluid dynamic of what the Talmud is. Any other? Yeah, Bob. Uh, how are the four divisions It's an interesting question. So almost no one uses it in a, in a super precise legal sense uh, because there have been a lot of legal innovations even within traditional Judaism. So I'll give one example. In the Mishnah, it talks about with kosher stuff, if you drop a drop of milk into a meat stew and it's less than a 60th of the uh, composition of the entire thing, still kosher, no problem. Um, they hadn't yet innovated separate dishes and separate kitchens. That didn't come along until much later um, when, frankly, uh, people had the resources and the means to have more uh, separate things. Like now we have the resources to have even separate kitchens. This would have been unheard of in the Talmud. They would not have understood that because Jews just didn't have that as a resource. So it sort of evolved over time, and the conversation about what you do with it uh, varies place-by-place, person-to-person, movement-to-movement. But one thing I do think is important to say is that nobody in Judaism is really reading the Hebrew Bible literally. This idea of biblical literalism is not really a Jewish idea. There are other faith traditions that are very into that, but the point is that even in very, very traditional, even Haredi Judaism, there's this strong current that you, of course you read this with all of our exegesis, all of our interpretations. You read it, I, uh, I think it's within uh, certain uh, Hasidic communities, like possibly Chabad, that they say that when you're very, very first learning the Hebrew Bible, you shouldn't do it just by itself because you might get the wrong idea, that you should start out your learning of Hebrew Bible with Rashi, that same commentator I mentioned. Um, so there's this idea that's very strong within Judaism that comes out of the Talmud that no matter what it is you're doing, so even within progressive Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, wherever you are, there's an idea that you use our lenses of interpretation to understand all of this material. So uh, all of the Jews, I would say, by and large, have a relationship with the Talmud. Where you get outside of that is uh, with uh, Karaite Judaism, or if you even want to call that Judaism is, a, is an open question, but their whole idea was that the Hebrew Bible stopped with the Hebrew Bible, that the rabbis don't have the authority to interpret and build on that and what have you. So that was where that split came about in the year, I'm thinking, eight or 900 or so. Do we have a question over here? So what the Jewish laws, like mm-hmm. kosher, all these little... Yeah. Are they just interpreted by the Mishnah or are they created by the Mishnah? So some are created. Um, I'll give an example is Passover. In the Torah, it says to tell your children, teach them what happened here. Teach them and have them feel as if they left Egypt themselves. 
That's all it says. Nothing about a Seder, nothing about four cups. So the rabbis come along and say, oh, well, what's the mechanism by which we're going to teach that to our kids? What's the mechanism by which we're going to experience having left Egypt ourselves? And so they innovate the Passover Seder. They design it around four cups of wine. The rules then that you get later on about uh, one of the interesting divisions between Ashkenazi and more Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews about not eating uh, kitniot, like certain kinds of bean or corn or whatever, on Passover, that's a dispute that goes back, that's way post-Talmud, that's medieval. And so you have all these medieval writers and authors who are putting together law codes, so they break these huge legal books, and then they put together exactly where they are getting their reasoning from in the Talmud, even as they're innovating it. So there's a huge um, range about the laws, about stuff that comes from Torah, which we call deoraita. It's a Hebrew word for, it's actually an Aramaic word for of the Torah, versus derabanan, which is of the rabbis in Aramaic. Um, and those laws are considered to have different gravity, actually, even within traditional Judaism. Other questions? While we're unpacking, what is this thing that we're about to look at and read and engage with? Anyone else? All right. So, I'm going to pass out the first of our texts. Um, this text actually is two parts, so I'm just giving you part two, part one. Uh, part two, I'm thinking that we'll probably learn next time. Um, and it's very interesting learning these two parts together, so I'm going to give some on each side. Um, seeing as this is kind of an experiment, this whole learning Talmudic KI is a new thing, I want to experiment with something else too, actually, um, which is the traditional means by which one learns Talmud. So I don't know who here has had occasion or the opportunity to sit in a traditional yeshiva or Beit Midrash, this kind of way in which you study Talmud, but you don't study Talmud like this, with me sitting up at the front of the room and talking at you all. The way in which you learn Talmud, the traditional way of doing this for centuries going back into European Judaism, is that you learn in Hevruta, which is the Aramaic word that means with a friend or a partner. Um, so when I was learning Talmud, for instance, for those couple of years, I would always work one-on-one -on -one with somebody, and then we'd come back together and have the whole um, bigger class conversation or class with all of our different Hevrutot. So what I want to do is start, take the first pass at this story um, in Hevruta. So I would invite you to turn to the person next to you. If there are three people, that's fine too. And I would also encourage you to turn to somebody who you did not come with, you are not related to. Try and talk to somebody who you don't know that well. Um, and take a first pass through this story. What I would suggest to you for this first pass, pick out what speaks to you, what is interesting, and then also keep track of questions. What didn't make sense? What's weird? What is sort of bizarre here? And then I'm going to let you all break. We're going to do this for a few minutes, and then we're going to come back together and begin unpacking the story as a group. So with that break, I'm going to step out and get some Talmuds to pass around just so you all can see what it looks like. But um, and now we're going to learn this story, The Oven of Achnai. All right, if you want to wrap up your Hevruta conversation, and we'll come back together as the full group to begin unpacking this story. So write down your last uh, last thoughts. So we're saying that Italy, a carrot tree sort of on its own, stood up and 
Okay, let's uh, let's bring it all back together. Let's rejoin one another to begin having this as a bigger conversation. I hope that you all enjoyed getting to learn with one another and getting to uh, meet somebody from maybe you haven't met before um, and enjoy this little experiment in Chavruta-style learning. So, if everyone wants to listen, we'll come back together as a group. All right, so, the oven of Akhenai. Can we get a volunteer to read just that first paragraph? Brave volunteer. Yeah, go ahead. We learned elsewhere. If one cut an oven into separate tiles, placing sand between each tile, Rev. Eliezer declared it clean, and the sages declared it unclean. And this was the oven of Akna. Why the oven of Akna? Said Rob Judah in Samuel's name. It means that they encompassed it with arguments as a snake. And proved it Excellent. All right. So, what questions came up just from this piece? What the hell is all this? <laughs> Great. So, I drew a picture. It's over there. That's the oven of Akhni, basically. It's imagine these round discs all sitting on top. The one on the uh, the left there is a side view. The one on the right, the concentric circles, is a top view of this thing. Imagine concentric discs that are hollow in the middle where you would be cooking whatever you're cooking. And then in between, they're using some kind of mortar or sand or something to glue these discs together. So this Akhni word is an Aramaic word. It's a serpent kind of word. And so they're playing a game here. First of all, they think that it actually looks like a coiled snake. Second, they say it that they were the reason it's called this is because they're encircling this item in this argument they're having in this debate like a boa constrictor is encircling its prey in that way, getting wrapped around it. So it's kind of a pretty uh poetic image. It's very poetic actually for the rabbis in a legal debate. Other questions. What else came up in looking at this first paragraph? Yeah, Bob. Question. What you just said, do you get all that from here? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, I... So, okay, another question. We're going to get right there in a second. A question, why would you cut the oven into tiles? So, ostensibly, that would make it more portable. If you can move it in pieces rather than as a whole discrete unit, you could move it around more easily. Like, take it down and rebuild it somewhere else. Well, they probably did have ceramic and were able to build uh, like ceramic in, in some way or another. Um, they t- there are other pieces that talk about ceramics. Um, is the question about shapes or is the question about how much sand between each tile? In the debate here? Yeah, like it's like a lot of snake and the shape of it and it's Hang on. So uh, let me come back to that in just a second. We had a couple of hands up over here. Yeah. So I get the, the snake yeah. connection in the last sentence of that first paragraph. Because they argued about it, that proved it unclean? So they're having this debate about what this thing is, whether it's kosher or not kosher, whether you can cook in it and your food is considered okay, or whether you can't cook in it because of its design whether there's something intrinsic to this design that we're looking at, this snake oven thing, that makes it kosher or not. Um, Why does the argument prove it unclean? Why the fact that they're arguing? That's a great question, and we don't know. Because we don't, there are places in which we see the substance of the rabbinic arguments, where they show us exactly what arguments they're making against each other. We don't get that here. In this piece, they're not actually showing us... um, what the arguments were. Um, another question? When we were talking about the oven, I was thinking about the oven of Akhna, and 
talking about it, we were understanding, okay, is it clean, is it not clean, is it kosher, it's not kosher. But our first question was, why is it snake? We don't know Aramaic, and we didn't know that Akhni meant serpent or snake. How did you know, and how are we supposed to know that? From Aramaic, and I, I can put a footnote in some of this next time. It's always a question to me in some of these texts, how much to translate, how much to transliterate, how much are these pieces where um, it's good to stumble over something that's a little alien and then like absorb it as a new concept. So I, uh, I, I strive to create a text here that is both... Um, perhaps a little beyond one's comfort zone, but isn't, like, inaccessible. So it's always good feedback for me to hear, you know, where to come by with that, if that if this word Akhni was, was a stumbling block in that way. When you were studying it, did they tell you, oh, Akhni means snake? We use great big Aramaic dictionaries. Okay. And the word came up and you were like, hey, what's Akhni? And you looked it up. Yeah, and we had to go look it up. Um, okay. Hang on, so this question over here, sorry, go ahead. Did that answer your question about kosher, not kosher, the sand in between? Yes. Okay, yes. cool. Bob, and the, yeah, we'll go back around again, yeah. Okay, the, the way it was translated, when we're using the word tile. Yeah. <clears throat> not knowing what tile means when this was written, mm-hmm. how do you know that it's that, that it's concentric circle, concentric, uh, whatever you want to call it, pieces of stone? You're you're drawing it like that, mm-hmm. which makes sense, but it doesn't describe tiles. Not precisely. Um, there are medieval rabbis who have drawn this thing because they were asking the exact same question you were in trying to understand that. So I found some drawings. I've actually seen these things that they created to try and understand it just as you are. It's a great question. Um, and you could even make the argument that it's not legitimate to... Uh, infer that. But I'm going to stick with, uh, for the purpose of telling the story, I'm comfortable sticking with that sort of rabbinic chain of transmission, if that makes sense. Um, another question in the back somewhere? Yeah. yeah. I'm curious about the people speaking in this paragraph. Yeah. There's uh, Eliezer, Judah, mm-hmm. speaking in Samuel's name. Yes. Who are the sages? The, so, the sages is a group that you get in the Mishnah. They just sort of refer to them broadly as the sages, the whole collective of them. Um, Rob Judah and Shmuel, uh, Samuel, again, just different rabbis. Sometimes they name them, sometimes they don't. I could go back and put up like the dates of these individual rabbis, but I actually chose not to, partly because the Talmud is not interested in when they were, or even if they were, in fact, alive to have this conversation at the same time. They just sort of have them in this mythic sense, having this conversation. Rabbi Eliezer is ultimately who we're going to focus on in this, for people who went all the way through this. He, his last name, uh, he was Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos, which is an interesting thing, too, in that this rabbi, who was one of the great rabbis, had a Greek name. Um, Something that I feel comfortable with as Rabbi Nicholas, in fact. So, um, but it's interesting, but so this relationship that he has with the other sages gets to be very fraught. Um, part two of this story actually gets very dark, in fact, in ways that are very surprising. But I don't want to give anything else away for now. Other questions? Yeah. Um, so. Name. Right, so Samuel. The opinion of Samuel would be a better opinion. What it probably means is that it's an older opinion. 
when it's like saying somebody said in somebody's name, that's usually their shorthand for explaining this is somebody who came before, and so here's another rabbi who's reteaching what they said before. Other questions before we move to paragraph two? And the story and the wheels start falling off of this thing. All right. Can we get a brave volunteer to take on paragraph two? All right. Yeah, go ahead, Bob. It has been taught on that day, Rabbi Eliezer brought forward every imaginable, imaginable argument, but they did not accept it. Said he to them, if the halacha agrees with me, let this tree prove it. Instantly, the tree was uprooted 100 cubits out of its place. Others say 400 cubits. Okay. So, to throw in what that English is, uh, halakha, to reiterate, means just the law. Literally means like the way or the path, but halakha is the general term. Even today, Jewish law is called halakha, um, in terms of, in the legal sense of it. So I figured that was one, one of those vocab words that was worth throwing in there. Um, questions about this paragraph? Yeah. What, 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 why bring up the calendar? Right. What does that have to do with tiles? Going through the whole thing, it seems like he's trying to show how absurd the question is. And he's giving answers that are even more absurd. Right. Like so. The whatever it is, the water and mm-hmm. all that other stuff. And then finally, at the end of heaven, there's not a proof of, of clean or unclean. That's exactly right. The word argument is in the first paragraph, but they're not having an argument. There's not an argument. There's an absurd discussion. You have picked up on what is what becomes the problematic piece of this whole thing, is that they've stopped actually having a legal argument. They've started. He stopped trying to prove this with any kind of reasoning. Right. No logic. No. Why are you proving with a supernatural act? Right. Um, And yeah. So other exactly. Where do you go with that? What are the implications of that? I would ask. I would push that a step further. Yeah. Yes. Because that's what the uprooting of the character is. That's right. That's right. Yeah. As are the others. Something that I thought was interesting is even though it seems the consensus was against uh, Rabbi Eliezer's opinion that this was clean. Even in that consensus, there's a lack of consensus as to how far this character was uprooted. They're all they're all agreeing that Eliezer is wrong, but they can't agree with each other by how much he was proven by Halakha to be correct. Right. You that's you're absolutely right. It's uh this is another one of these places where you get the orality of the story. You get, it sounds like you can imagine a bunch of these guys, and they were men at this time, these were all male rabbis, sitting around and telling this story and being like, yeah, you heard it was 100, I heard it was 400, you know, like, it's got that quality of a, of, a, of a legend to it in that way. And so what we have here actually preserves the voices of these guys talking it out in that way. Uh, Natalie, way in the back. <laughs> Excellent question. To me that if you're talking about halakha and what Jewish law is handed down by the Torah, which is by God, so whatever 
it's not Eliezer making the tree move. It's like, well, if I'm right, then God's going to make the tree move. It seems more like miraculous than magical. That's an excellent, excellent uh, point to get into, is this question of what are we seeing here? Are, to what extent are we seeing divine action or intervention? To what extent are we seeing miracle, and are those the same thing? And to what extent are we seeing magic? Um, and we, what difference do we see in all of those things? I'm, I think it's actually very instructive to think about pieces in the Torah that don't say magic is impossible, magic is not real or whatever. They just say don't do it. It's not what you're supposed to do. It's forbidden. Other people, they can mess with that stuff. Like Pharaoh has his, uh, his court people, you know, doing their magic tricks and whatever, but they're saying that's, that's, that's something that you don't do as an Israelite. Um, so it's a fascinating, uh, question is how much is this magic? How much is this miracle? And is it okay even? Um, yeah. And how much is it coincidence? Okay. There were people who didn't buy it and certainly in the next paragraph we Yes. So, um, yeah, go ahead. But what, what if you take the argument that the carob tree uprooting proves it? In other words, you say, okay, let this carob tree do something, and it, God made it do something. So we're back in, yeah, we're back in the same conundrum Bob was talking about that, like, you, okay, so maybe you're proving it, and maybe God even agrees with it if you see God as the agent who's making that happen. But that's not based in any kind of rationality or right. reasoning. You can't have an argument using God, using heaven. Can you? Illogic. An argument is a structured approach to a problem, to a question. So I would suggest that uh, that some of the I would suggest that the sages agree with you. Rabbi Eliezer does not agree with you. He thinks you can't. I mean, and this becomes a very interesting question in a contemporary sense when you're looking at, well, uh, for instance, legislation that's based on religious text or values, saying, well, what's your basis for it in the end? Well, God said so. Um, this is a this is an argument that we have even in our own era. This is not something that's so ancient and so foreign to us in that way. Um, other questions before we move to the next paragraph? All right, another brave volunteer. No proof can be brought from an Arab tree that is quoted. Again, he said to them, if the halakha agrees with me, let the stream of water prove it. Whereupon the stream of water flowed backwards. No proof can be brought from a stream of water. <laughs> Any questions about this piece? <laughs> it's defying gravity. That's right. It's He's sort of upping the ante as he's going. Um, this is interesting to see. Other uh, observations or questions? I think this piece is a little more straightforward, so I'm happy going on to the next paragraph. Another brave volunteer. Again, here, if the Halakha agrees with me, that the walls of the schoolhouse proven, whereupon the walls began to fill. The Reverend Joshua removed them, saying, When scholars are engaged in a halakhic dispute, what do you have to. That should be right, I'm sorry. Typo. Hence they did not fall. They did not go to Joshua. Nor did they resume the upright in honor of Revelation. And they are still standing. It's a draw. All right. What's that? It's a draw. It's a draw, yeah. It's a tie. Other thoughts, questions about this piece? Observations? Well, now the walls have agency, right? Now the walls are making the choice. Yeah. So it's not an outside force. 
Well, the walls are making a decision not to go in or out. I don't have the paper in front of me, but um, but they're what they're agreeing in, in the one hand, but they're agreeing with one of the rabbis. In the other hand, they're agreeing with the other rabbi, so they're they're not going to um, go either way. Which is suddenly it's it it speaks to this not being an outside influence, but rather the walls themselves are making a choice to decide. So I want to repeat that in the form of a question almost, but who is inside and who is outside? What are the boundaries of this debate? Who's included in it and who's speaking for it? It's, it's an open question, I think. It's hard to, I don't think there's quite a clear answer exactly with that. Um, I saw three all the way in the back. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Rabbi Yehoshua is talking to the walls. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing. <laughs> he's not talking to Rebbe Eliezer. That's right. He's talking to the walls, in fact. And so the walls, out of kavod, out of respect for both of them, wind up in between somewhere. It's fascinating to think about. Yeah. Um, there's the uh, searching for compromise mm-hmm. in this paragraph. Okay. And that's a kind of encouraging thing. Absolutely. The, so maybe there's an idea here that maybe there's a middle ground to be found. Maybe, you know, we don't have to be so extreme and one person right, one wrong. Maybe we can sort of uh, work it out in the end. Um, did you have a hand up back there, too? Well, I was just going to say that first, Rabbi Eliezer was making all these things happen. Mm-hmm. And then Rabbi Joshua started talking the walls. And then he started making those things happen. So at first they were arguing well, no water, no walls, no territory, like that can't be, but then Rabbi Joshua sort of Right. Um So yeah, so is Rabbi is Rabbi is Rabbi Yoshua um stooping to Rabbi Eliezer's level, or is he <laughs> trying to push back on this one saying no like I don't accept that yeah over here I, I like the idea that the both of them ask for a, a backup yes somebody is a witness yeah to what I'm saying mm-hmm. you know and it's not enough that below but they invoke mm-hmm. something else to point their argument that is true that, that they're they're the one in the right Absolutely. Um, I think you're absolutely right, and I think that's a piece of how these pieces of our literature and our getting to see the perspective of the rabbis. What did their lives look like? What were their What were they thinking about? What? Um, I think it seems like a fable or a folk tale. Yeah. Uh, it does have that kind of quality to it. One thing I appreciate about these stories, and we'll see more of this in part two, um, a lot of these don't have nice, neat endings. A lot of them have very ugly endings, actually, or get into real darkness. So one thing I want to point out in this story, you know, it's one thing for the walls to start tilting in. Suppose Rabbi Yoshua hadn't rebuked the walls, and he did. Is this basically saying that Rebbe Eliezer is willing to drop the walls of the Beit Midrash, of the schoolhouse here, on all of the inhabitants, injuring them and maybe killing them all, to make a point? Like, is he willing to destroy their whole court, their whole place where they live, to make the point that he's right? He says he turns in. What's that? If they tell us. They could. 
That's a, this is a, a debate that I've heard before. Well, which way were they tilting? Which way were they tilting? Yeah. It's going to be a fantasy that they're tilting. Mm-hmm. Who says they're collapsing in? Well, if it's a good question. If you imagine it as a place with a roof, though, which is uh, envisioned, it would be tough for them to tilt out and not have the roof come down then. But it's like you're like, what, 500? It could be like thatched roof, mud roof, no roof. Like, it's not exactly. It's not totally clear. You're right. right. Like, mm-hmm. if it's fantastical that the walls are tilting, who knows how the walls are tilting? Absolutely. I want to lift up something that you were just saying. It could be thatch. It could be this or that. Um, my rabbi, Steve Sager, who was here talking to us about Elijah stories uh, a few weeks ago, uh, he always teaches, and he teaches this in Durham, North Carolina, not in L.A. He said, he always asks students, what's your movie version of this? <laughs> what does this look like in your head? Um, which is actually a great way to look at this, because when you start unpacking your movie version, you begin unpacking the assumptions that you have about it. And you get to hear, oh, do other people have the same assumption? Did they read it differently? Exactly what is it? And there's enough ambiguity in these stories to give a lot of uh, variance in this. So as you pointed out, which way did they tilt? Maybe it was dangerous. Maybe it's not. Um, great questions. And that act of unpacking, okay, well, what's your movie version? Um, when you're talking to somebody in Chevruta or learning in this way, it's always great to ask that question in a scene like this. It's always a really powerful thing to do. Did we uh question over there? Yeah. Perhaps uh, Rabbi Eliezer did not necessarily enter into this argument truly in the, the best spirits of debate, because if he's so willing to prove his point as to destroy the school, then he probably wasn't going to be swayed by any arguments, no matter how rational, because he already knew he was right. Yeah. And there's that thing when you go into an argument where you have to go in with the idea that you could be proven proved incorrect, or you're just going to automatically assume no matter what, that all arguments fall together than your own. That's right. He's so sure of himself that this whole conclave of sages, the, this trusted body of other rabbis, that all of their minds together are worse than his because he's correct in this matter. That's right. There is a certain... Yeah, I might even call it arrogance yeah. to that. This idea that he is right and the entire um, collection of these sages, they're all wrong. They don't know what's going on. Um, it's a pretty impressive position to take. Um, but then you have to ask the question, okay, if he's no longer even arguing based in reasons, we're talking about Bob, has he already lost the argument? Yeah. Is he still winning the argument, even if these fantastical things are happening? If he's having to resort to that in the first place... Um, is he has he lost the argument? I've, I've heard it said in you know in debates that as soon as uh, the ad hominem comes out, you've already lost. The, you know this is the mark of somebody who has lost the argument. Yeah. Um, is that you know is what we're seeing here a shade of that same observation? Um, other thoughts? Share. All right, let's keep moving. Uh, let's continue moving through it. All right, so this second to last paragraph under brave volunteer. Yeah, go ahead. Again, he said that if the halacha agrees with you, let it be proved from heaven. Whereupon a pot coal spoke out. Why do you dispute with Red Eliezer, seeing that in all matters the halacha agrees with him? But Red Yehoshua arose and exclaimed, It is not in heaven. What did he mean by this? Said Reb Jeremiah, since the Torah was already given at Mount Sinai, 
We pay no attention to Abad Kol because you have long since written in the Torah at Mount Sinai after the majority must one incline. All right. Questions. There's a lot that just happened here. Yeah, go ahead. Well, okay. So uh, I have an issue with the idea that after the majority one must incline mm-hmm. because at least from a sort of scientific standpoint as far as argumentation is concerned, there is a major idea that appellation to a higher authority can be used as evidence, like in the idea of naming uh, a truth to argument philosophy of Eastern LA. Mm-hmm. If there's a kind of a tree that's a, you know, a, a white ash, but everybody in the community has been calling it a birch, and then a scientist comes and tests it and says, this is a white ash, you believe the scientist because he's the higher authority. He has the knowledge of what encompasses a white ash, whereas the majority might be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. But here we're saying that the majority is right regardless of the, the higher authorities in place. Right. So... I think is strength. There is the phenomenon of the tyranny of the majority. Um, this is why in democracies we build in special protections for minorities who might be otherwise oppressed by a majority who decides, oh, well, we're the majority. We're just going to do this because we can. Yeah. Um, I want to say a word about this bot coal real quick. Yeah. So this is another one of these where I was trying to figure out what to translate or what to say about it. Literally, it means the daughter of a voice. Um, the daughter of a voice, which doesn't totally make much sense in English anyway, which is part of why I didn't translate it. Um, I see translations such as heavenly voice or such. I've heard poetic translations such as an echo of a voice. But there's this idea in Talmud that God is further away than God would be in, say, the Hebrew Bible, that they see themselves as being more distant from the events of the Torah and all of these things. And so when God does get involved... It's in these echoes and glimmers and sort of shadows. It's in the gray areas. It's not like God was coming down and Moses saw God panim el panim face to face in that kind of immediate way. God is a much more remote character in this. And so they use these interesting poetic formulations like bat kol, the daughter of a voice, to describe God actually weighing in on something. Um, So that was why I wanted to leave that in the original, even though I recognize that it is that... It was probably not something that was easy to translate or wrap your heads around. But I figured that with all of this about it being proven from heaven, you get the sense that it's a divine thing coming either way. Other questions? Yeah. Robert. Um, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, this strikes me as a very uh, reconstructionist uh, kind of a comment coming in the year zero to 900. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, don't go appeal to heaven. That, that's 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 not the way we deal with this. Mm-hmm. We discuss it here and now, and whatever the majority says is the way it is. So one thing that I yeah that that's absolutely right. One thing that. In this version, my footnote got lost, but it should have been, it used to be footnoted. I'll have to go back and look at that. This line, it is not in heaven. That's a line from Deuteronomy. So what they're doing is using the Torah itself to argue with God. So they're saying, oh, this is the word of God. Well, we can use this to argue with God. Um, yeah, go ahead, Bob. Well, you interpreted uh, Bob Cole as daughter of a voice. Yeah. And another interpretation could be that a daughter of a voice, as opposed to a Son of a voice is a small voice. It is it is less of a voice. It is small. Beautiful. I love it. And that you don't listen to 
that lesser of a voice when you have some other authority. So the gender politics of that particular piece aside, um, that's a great reading. I, I can tell you the way in which the rabbis have traditionally read this as being like the vo- a distant voice of God, but what if it is a small voice? What if in that they're trying to imply that this is a lesser voice in the conversation? The Talmud is not shy from being a sexist document at times or misogynistic. That totally happens in the Talmud. So um, I think there's some legitimacy to that reading as well. It's a very interesting point. Other, yeah, go ahead. Does the last sentence mean that if something was written in the Torah yeah. and it's inconsistent with something that is said later, the earlier Torah-based warning prevails? So that's the question is... I mean, generally speaking, let me take a step back. Yes, that's how their arguments work. That's how they do their arguing is by cherry-picking verses or things that they say support their um, their uh, reasoning or their rationing. Um, what I will say about that is that oftentimes the connection between whatever verse they've picked for it and the actual verse in the Torah in context, um, oftentimes that connection is specious at best. Um, but... They believe that there is something deeply sacred about the words, that they're not even just reading for context. If they can just pick those words out, and they believe every word in Torah has significance. So if they can find some piece, some hook to hang their argument on, they'll do that. They're comfortable with that in that way. Um, other, yeah, Mickey. Yeah, the majority generally prevailed, but the minority was also extremely important because as we the right. And not for nothing, these are a bunch of people having this argument in a book where they preserved all of the minority opinions and all of the dissenting opinions. Um, this gets handed down to us uh, with everybody who disagreed and argued and whatnot. So there does seem to be uh, a certain kind of value that they hold in the uh, disagreement. The other thing I want to just put out there there is a concept, this is, I think, one of the coolest and most beautiful concepts in Judaism to me. It's called Machloket L'Shem Shemayim. We're just Machloket for short. The L'Shem Shemayim is in the name of heaven, but a Machloket is a disagreement. Um, they, there is a certain kind of tension and fear around disagreements about the law because they want to do the right thing. They want to have the law figured out and figure out what they're supposed to do with it. But the idea that you would argue about something Torah or something religion-related is considered virtuous to them. They consider it to be a high, lofty virtue to argue about what's happening in Judaism or what the text says or what somebody else's reading of the text is. It is not, the rabbinic tradition is not one of straight hierarchy that is top down. They just tell everyone to think like, no, I mean, this is a piece of why I was saying, like, I want to hear it loud in here, that that discourse, that's what they're doing here. That arguing, that back and forth, that conversation is a really deep, uh, intrinsic part of the rabbinic enterprise to begin with. So this idea that there could be something virtuous in the argument, I think is beautiful. I think it's lovely. Other thoughts about this piece? Yeah. Well, for just, when I read it, you know, I just uh, pictured Rev. Jeremiah, you know, the, the you there seemed to me to be God, just saying to God, like, look, you gave us the Torah, you gave us Sinai, I'll walk past the burning bush, I don't have any interest in it. And I just thought that's such an intriguing concept. Yeah, he's basically saying, look, you already gave us the Torah, butt out. (laughs) We're having this argument. What business is it of yours? Like, that is exactly the uh, 
that's basically what he's saying, it sounds like. Uh, it sounds to me that way, which is a fascinating thing, this idea that one of these Rabbanim, these sages of antiquity, would be telling God to butt out of their argument. Um, it's fascinating to me. Other other thoughts? Yes? The beginning of this starts off with the question of the argument clean or not clean. Mm-hmm. Walking through the text, there's no discussion of that. We're going to come back to that in part two. <laughs> to be continued. To be continued, that's right. Um, this story in particular, I'll just tell you in the interest of transparency, is a really fascinating one to see taught because it's a very long story and it takes lots of different twists and turns. And I made the editorial decision to break it up into two parts right here. And I'm hoping after we do part two next time, um, we'll come back and look at, well, what does that mean that we chopped it up that way and how does it read now that we know the whole thing? Um, it's very interesting. Um, any other comments or thoughts about this piece right here? Yeah, Natalie. I love what you brought up. Part of what I love about this, I want to say this just as an editorial point about this. I've been reading this story for 15 years now, um, starting when I was like in middle school and high school. Um, more than 15 years, actually. This story, it's one of these stories where the more you can keep coming back to it and different things come out that you've never heard before. So I never heard before that that's really interesting. The halakha, just like the walls, just like all these other things, suddenly the halakha has a voice here. It seems to be its own agency here, even though the batkol is speaking for it in that way, which is a fascinating turn. I never thought about that because I had thought about, oh, it's just if the halakha agrees with me in the sense of I'm right in the law, then... Uh, let the heavenly voice prove it or whatever. But I never thought about, well, what if the law is its own voice here, too? That's a fascinating question, um, and I don't have a concrete answer for you. That's great. Yeah, Mickey. There are different interpretations of Hamakah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two So there is that dynamic. There's another dynamic at play, which is that, so to open up Jewish, the prescriptive side of Judaism, um, there's halakha, which is Jewish law. In addition, there are two other, there are other uh, categories as well. 
Minhag is the name of another category, and it means custom. So there are things that are customary, but are not legally required. Kippah, this is a minhag. There is no Jewish law anywhere talking about covering your head. No halakha whatsoever. Um, purely minhag. Uh, the, way, the way you wrap tefillin, that's another minhag thing. So, um, for instance, Sephardic communities wrap it one way, and Ashkenazi communities often wrap it the other way, but then they'll overturn that saying, if your father or your father's father had a tradition of wrapping it one way, you should go with that. I've heard all of those as like Haredi Orthodox answers in Israel, which is interesting because a lot of that comes down to custom, not just law. So in between, there are all of these different pieces as well, um, that it's not just as cut and dry as it's the law. There are different categories in that way. Um, other... Other pieces before we get to the big finish. All right, who wants to take us home? You know what? I'll read it. Why not? (laughs) No brave volunteers. All right, I'll read it. Rebbe Natan met with Eliyahu and asked him, What did Akadosh Baruch Hu do in that hour? He left. He replied, saying, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. So I want to just unpack a little bit. Eliyahu is Elijah the prophet, same figure. And Hakadosh Baruch Hu is, means the blessed holy one. And that's their shorthand for talking about God in the Talmud. Um, so they just, so Rebbe Natan is having a conversation with Elijah the prophet at the end after all this stuff happened. He said, so what did God say about that in the end after Rebbe Jeremiah told him to butt out? And uh, Elijah says to him, because Elijah sort of comes and goes. Elijah gets to be part of what's going on with the rabbis and up in heaven. He's this interesting character that crosses all of these boundaries, which is part of why we have him tied in our Passover Seder in all of these ways. We may look at more stories of his at some point as well. Um, and I think some of you got to uh, learn a little bit of his uh, Elijah stories with uh, my rabbi Steve. So God left saying, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. Thoughts, reactions, yeah. Uh, in the Torah, usually it seems to me when the children of Israel had a dispute with God or crossed Him, uh, God was not so casual about it and would threaten destruction for the entirety of the people or banish them to forty years wandering in the desert. For God is a jealous God, as it says over and over again in the yeah. Hebrew Bible. So, uh, kind of at what point? After the establishment of the temple, was that when God chilled out, or what point did God decide that are you in with him was acceptable? And even something that would be appreciated as opposed to, you know, paramount to an act of, you know, pagan worship and something that would bring hellfire upon the people involved. So, right, that's possible. I also, I looked at this story with my dad once, and the way he read it was really interesting. He's like, he said, oh, that's God laughing like, you think you're so smart. Watch what's coming down the pike. You think you're clever. Isn't that cute? Like, um, that this is ominous laughter. Um, That's more in line with the way God acts in the Bible to Moses. Okay, so so there's that question. The rabbis tend to look at this as actually joyful laughter because they see their whole rabbinic enterprise, this whole arguing back and forth thing, as being a godly thing. They see what they're doing as being in service of God in that way. And so for them to have this great argument in whatever in which they even argued out-argued God in it, that God is, wow, 
Look at them. I'm really proud of them. Look at how far they've come. That's great. Like, you know, the pride of like, I mean, he talks about my children have defeated me. That this is this voice of being really proud of God's children who have become so clever in all of their uh, machinations and legal arguments and all of that. So that's the way in which the rabbis traditionally argue it, even though I think you totally can read it as something more ominous. I think that's to, uh, a really interesting reading as well. The rabbis say it's tongue-in-cheek, like, oh, you guys are so... Oh, you got it. They tend to look at it as a more positive thing, that God was proud of them, that this laughter is God laughing out of, like, joy of, look at how beautiful this is that God's children have done this, you know? Does that make sense? That ten- That's the way in which the rabbis tend to come down on this. Yeah, two uh, in the back, right in one in front of the other. Because, yeah. That there's something very alive, very vibrant in this debate. That even with the destruction of the temples, this isn't a defeated, broken people. This is a people that are still totally committed to this holy conversation in a way that's really lively and ongoing. You hear all their voices. Yeah. I can see that conclusion. This has been a really scholarly day. Mm-hmm. We're bringing either logic or precedent, or as there are in lots of other places in the Talmud. But for this kind of debate to, to lead to approval, it's kind of shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't have, there's lots of arguments that we're not hearing, right? Because we didn't see the arguments. Yeah. That's right. So there is arguing that goes on that they just don't. Yes. They haven't revealed it. Yeah. That's right. How strong is this actual argument that, you know, they we just hear, oh, they hashed out, they gave every possible argument, and then that's all we hear about it, which is kind of fascinating that it gets to this level. Yeah, Bob. I, I think of the, uh, in the 20s and 30s when scientists were discussing quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. They had uh, metaphors, uh, I forgot what they call it, but uh, sort of imaginary, ridiculous pictures of what's, what could happen. Thought experiments. That's it. Thank you. And they were absurd, but it allowed them to understand the problem better. And I'm just wondering, reading this, you know, we're saying, well, the character proved it, and and a hundred units, et cetera, et cetera. He may not be saying that's happening. It may be to prove something, to give a picture that will allow them, the the sages and Eliezer, to come to a conclusion of clean or unclean. It seems to me this is such a minor debate. I mean, whether it's clean or unclean, what difference does it really make? Like, how did this make it into the book? I know you're saying, it's, it seems like such a small thing, like, this made it all the way into this book and it's being debated for thousands of years. This, like, it's kosher, it's not kosher. Snake oven, yeah. It's like, snake um, oven. Like, that's what made it in? Well, the one thing I, I, I want to hold on to is that these, so they read the Torah, and they want to figure out how to do the laws that are written there. They are, they are a, 
incredibly concerned. I cannot uh, overstate how concerned they are about making sure they figure out what it is they're supposed to do. But the Torah doesn't give you all the information, which is why they're working on this whole enterprise in the first place. So they see this as, if they don't get this right, they have violated their relationship with God. The stakes, with all of these legal rulings and all of that, like that's the, the gravity that they have. They have erred, they have sinned by violating halakha. So... Yes, it's this bizarre little, like, like really, the kashrut of the snake oven is, like, what you're going to pick the battle over? Um, and, yeah, they're willing to fight. They, they are willing to have that battle over it because they see it as a really important piece of this religion that they're in the, content, in the process of creating through all of this work. Um, two more, and then we're going to wrap up real quick. Yeah. Right, so I have a question about the, the voice of the whole conversation. This is all presented as sort of a story heard second or third hand. Mm-hmm. Because it begins with we learned elsewhere, and then it ends with somebody asking the proper Elijah about this conversation. So that uh, Rabbi Natan obviously was not present for this, because he's hearing about this. Is, are, is the majority of the Talmud written that way, or is some of it presented as though you are a part of an active argument? I just obviously have not studied that. Sure. A great question. So Rabbi Natan, I want to just put out there, he may have been at the argument. He may have then been going afterward to ask Elijah, what did God actually do up in heaven while God was doing this stuff down here? Um, so he may have been there. It's not It's not clear. You're, uh, it's a good question. This well, The way it starts, we learned elsewhere, that voice. This is that voice I was talking about earlier, the stom, the redactor, whoever that, the invisible unseen hand of the redactor is, that's one of those places where you see it, right there. Um, that's the, that's who that is, right at the beginning there. There is that sort of passive voice throughout. Yes, that kind of ties it together, binds it, um, which is part of this whole written work. We get that voice throughout it. Yeah, Robert. Uh, to the point that you just made a minute ago, that well, this may not seem like a big deal mm-hmm. to us, but to them, my my understanding of what this is saying is that. You were talking about the sages and Rabbi Eliezer. So I'm assuming that the brightest minds of the time were in the room. Yes. A number of them. That's right. There's Eliezer, and he's got the rest of these guys are not like just nobody. They're the rest of the smart people. Yes. And what's going on is that Eliezer thinks it's one way, and all the rest of the guys say no. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is okay, the answer is no. So. Get anybody you want. You're outvoted. Yeah. You know, 25 to 1 or whatever, however many people were in the room. So this is another controversial piece about this rabbinic literature. What we're reading is a literature of the elites of the society at this time. These are the brightest minds. These are the richest people, and these are the people with political power, in addition to um, just having this religious sort of cultic debate. Um, What this debate turns into, though, just to sort of wrap up, is not a debate about the kashrut of the snake oven. Um, that is almost immaterial. What this is about is the process. And what this is about is authority. And this is about who gets to wield that authority. What is the process by which that authority is wielded or yielded even to other people, to groups? What is the process by which we as Jews are going to sit and figure out what is Judaism going to look like? How is it going to be comprised uh, as a tradition, as a set of traditions, as a set of texts, like the questions here, and I think this is why God gets pulled into it, are much, much bigger than purely the snake oven. Um, the questions here are really about the soul of the people um, and what direction that's going to take. Now, I'll tell you for next time, um, 
without spoiling it too much, the next part becomes violent. Not all of our characters survive this story. Um, part two is actually very dark, in fact. Um, so it's very interesting to see where this struggle, in fact, that becomes a very essential, fundamental struggle amongst the rabbis, this struggle goes to a dark place. So, Oven of Aknai part two, next time. Um, hope you all enjoyed learning with me this evening. Well, yeah.